Hello dear listeners, whether you're just finding us or have been with us for a while, welcome. At Dreams and Crimes, we've got a treasure trove of stories waiting to be discovered. We like to describe them as a cosy blanket after a long day of work, or a ticket to a thrilling adventure before bed. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with us. Your support means the world. Want to take it up a notch? Consider subscribing to Dreams and Crimes on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. We're cooking up something special, turning these stories into videos. We've put a lot of efforts into them, and they're actually super good. And now, let's dive into today's story. Fred and Charlotte had been married for 23 years, filled with violence. So much so that they had divorced once and remarried. But the second marriage looked to be headed toward divorce as well. A little after sundown on July 24, 1981, Charlotte hadn't returned to the house. A few days later, Charlotte's car was found in Terre Haute, Indiana, just 16 miles away. Police searched her vehicle and found no blood or signs of foul play, but they did find a loaded handgun beneath the seat. This is Episode 2, Fred Grab. The Grab family was wealthy by small-town standards. They were easily one of the wealthiest families in Marshall, Illinois, a tiny farming town just 10 miles from the Indiana border. Most of their wealth came from the inheritance that Charlotte Grab had acquired from her parents. Both Charlotte and her husband Fred were extremely hard workers. They worked long hours farming their soybean and cornfields, but their life was far from perfect. The couple had two children, Jeff and Jenny, and when there were problems between their parents, the kids usually took Charlotte's side. Fred and Charlotte had been married for 23 years filled with violence, so much so that they had divorced once and remarried, but the second marriage looked to be headed toward divorce as well. Fred was an extremely large man, standing at six foot four, while Charlotte was petite. During their heated arguments, Fred had no problems using his fists on his tiny wife or his son Jeff. Things had gotten so bad that Charlotte had instructed Jeff and Jenny to come looking for her if she wasn't back to the house by the end of the workday. Fred was also a serial philanderer and, at 42 years old, had a fascination with younger women, usually having a few girlfriends on the side at any given time. Fred was currently dating a 24-year-old, curly-haired, blonde bartender named Vicki McAllister. After learning of Fred's latest affair, Charlotte filed for divorce, and Fred moved out of the family home into a cabin on the family farm. Jeff and his wife moved into the main family house with Charlotte. Shortly after Fred moved into the cabin, Charlotte filed battery charges against him after he assaulted her when she went to the cabin to take some furniture back to the main house. A little after sundown on July 24, 1981, Charlotte hadn't returned to the house. Jeff and Jenny knew something was wrong. She had gone out to the soybean field on her tractor, but hadn't returned by sundown. So they went looking for her. Later that evening, they found the tractor she'd been driving parked inside a machine shed with her lunchbox still resting on the front tire. Jenny immediately went home and reported her mother missing to the Clark County Sheriff. 
When questioned by the sheriff, Fred admitted they had a quarrel, but he said the last time he saw her, she was driving her car toward the interstate highway. A few days later, Charlotte's car was found in Terre Haute, Indiana, just 16 miles away, across the state border. Police searched her vehicle and found no blood or signs of foul play, but they did find a loaded handgun beneath the seat. Contrary to Fred's story, a friend of Charlotte's came forward and told the sheriff she saw Fred driving his truck towards Terre Haute with someone following in Charlotte's car, someone other than Charlotte. They claimed the person driving Charlotte's car was a young blonde woman with curly hair. Investigators found that Charlotte had placed notes in a safe deposit box at the local bank just 10 days before she went missing. In those notes, she wrote that she thought Fred was stealing farm equipment and that she didn't think she would live through a divorce. She said that she was afraid of Fred and his business partner, Dale Kessler. The sheriff questioned Dale Kessler, who claimed Fred was with him on the evening Charlotte went missing. At Jeff and Jenny's request, the sheriff brought Fred and Vicki McAllister before a grand jury, but both of them refused to talk invoking their Fifth Amendment rights. Jenny even asked her father to take a lie detector test to prove he didn't kill her mother. He refused. Charlotte's case went cold for three years. Jenny and her husband offered a $1,000 reward for information. They later raised it to $10,000, then again to $25,000, but nobody came forward. Eventually, Jenny hired a private investigator, Charles Pearson. Pearson decided to follow the clue of the curly-haired blonde driving Charlotte's car. Clearly, Pearson believed the woman driving the car was Vicki McAllister, and he wanted to talk to her. Pearson had heard that Fred and Vicki had broken up and that she was now living in West Terre Haute, Indiana. Pearson said, There seemed to be two things she liked to do, drink beer and play pool. So I started going to bars in the area and doing both. I met her, and we became friendly. When Pearson finally admitted to her who he really was and why he befriended her, she couldn't help herself but to spill the beans. He said the information just poured out of her, like she really needed to get it off her chest. The secret she had been holding inside was eating her alive, and she was more than willing to come clean. McAllister admitted that she was the one driving Charlotte's car that day. That was just the beginning. She went on to describe the gruesome details of what happened that night and the following day. Vicki McAllister's story made her physically ill each time she told it. The story would eventually be told to authorities and later to two juries. McAllister recalled that she was with Fred Grab in the machine shed that day to get some 55-gallon metal barrels to use for farm work. As they were getting the barrels, they heard Charlotte's tractor, and Fred told Vicky to hide behind another tractor inside the shed. Fred went outside the shed to meet Charlotte when they got into a heated argument. The argument escalated as they came back inside the shed. Eventually, Fred couldn't control his rage and began strangling her. Using his bare hands, he choked her neck until the point she was almost unconscious. Then he released her and let her regain consciousness, then choked again. He would repeat this over and over again until eventually he choked his wife to death. Once Charlotte was dead, he then sodomized her lifeless body while Vicky watched. 
Fred then grabbed a grease gun from the shed and filled all of Charlotte's orifices with grease. He crumpled her body into one of the 55-gallon barrels and loaded the barrel into the back of his pickup truck. Grab instructed Vicky to drive Charlotte's green Ford LTD that was parked outside and follow him as he drove his truck across the state line into Indiana. That night, they dumped Charlotte's car outside of a bar in Terre Haute and then drove back to Grab's farm and parked near the Wabash River. Grab took the barrel out of his truck and placed it near a maple tree where he poured diesel fuel in the barrel, covering Charlotte's body. He then lit it on fire. Fred and Vicky sat on the riverbank while the barrel burned. The diesel fuel and grease inside her body burned slowly, all night long. The next morning, they heard the search party approaching, so they put out the fire, loaded the drum back into Fred's truck with Charlotte's charred body inside, and headed back to Vicky's home. At sunset that night, they went back to the river, put the barrel in the same spot, and set it ablaze again. Again, it burned all night. In the morning, Fred rolled the barrel into the river. The only body part remaining was Charlotte's skull, to which he said, This will make good fish bait, as he threw it into the river. Vicky's confession helped, but it simply wasn't enough. Prosecutors needed some sort of physical evidence to charge Grab. With no body, no barrel, and no murder weapon, investigators needed something beside Vicky McAllister's word against Fred's. Officially, Charlotte was still just a missing person. The new sheriff in Clarks County was Dan Crumrin, and he was curious if the maple tree that still stood above the burn site could somehow be used. Crumrin asked the University of Illinois for help, and they sent a plant biologist, Eugene Himlick, and an organic chemist, Donald Dickerson. During the natural cycle of a tree's life, the seasons will cause the tree to grow in the spring and summer, then go dormant in the winter. This process each year creates the familiar ring in the trunk and branches of every tree. A ring in the tree's branch will show the growth of that year. Diesel fuel is highly toxic to a tree, and if it doesn't kill a tree, it will at the very least hamper the growth. Hemlick and Dickerson took samples from the branches of the maple tree. Their findings concluded that three rings deep, meaning three years ago, the growth of the tree was much thinner. The tree had gone through some sort of stress the summer that Charlotte went missing. They then took the samples and shredded them to sawdust, which Dickerson analyzed using a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. A mass spectrometer is a device that identifies the components of a sample, even in very tiny amounts. In their analysis, they found the presence of hydrocarbons found in diesel products. There were a total of five branches tested. The two branches located on the side of the tree that the barrel was on showed the hydrocarbons. The other three on the opposite side did not. This forensic evidence was enough to convict Fred Grab. One of the prosecutors used in the trial was Robert Egan of Chicago. Egan had been the prosecutor on the trial of John Wayne Gacy, a serial killer convicted for the murders of 33 young men in 1980. Fred Grab was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. However, this story is far from over. During the trial, Fred had the support of his latest girlfriend, Barbara Graham, 
a twice-divorced mother of three from a nearby town. Fred had purchased her a mink coat that she wore in the courthouse during the trial to torment the family. A few weeks after Grab's conviction, he was being held in the Clark County Jail when Barbara Graham attempted to break him out. Barbara showed up at the jail and told Deputy Sheriff Mike Paulson that she wanted to give Fred a love note. When Paulson opened the door, she fired five shots, one hitting the deputy in the leg. She then hovered over him and said, Don't make me kill you. Graham's attempt, however, was unsuccessful. She was sentenced to 16 years in prison for that crime. The judge that sentenced Grab to prison was convinced that Fred somehow planned the breakout attempt from behind bars. Just two months later, with Fred still in prison, the Grab home and the home that Fred's son Jeff had built nearby both burned to the ground. Fire marshals determined that both fires were intentionally set. Police suspected Fred had something to do with it from prison but since he was already serving a life sentence, they didn't pursue it. During Fred's imprisonment, his lawyers filed an appeal of his verdict and got his first conviction overturned on a technicality. By this time, Vicki McAllister was living another life under another name, but she came back to Clark County to testify against Fred once again. Just a month before the second trial, Fred's son Jeff, who had testified at the first trial, had vanished. He was on a business trip in California when all family members lost contact with him. By the time of the trial date, Jeff was nowhere to be found. The judge allowed his wife, Cindy, to testify in his absence. Despite Jeff's absence, Fred was again convicted a second time and sentenced to 75 years in prison. One month after the trial, Jeff's body was found floating in the water at Seal Beach in California. Three bullet holes riddled his body, and an anchor was tied around him to keep the body down. To this day, Fred denies having anything to do with his son's murder. Vicki McAllister received the $25,000 reward that Jenny and her husband had offered and was relocated under yet another assumed name. She still lives in fear that Fred will somehow find her from behind bars. As of 2018, Fred Grab is inmate number N57941 at Menard Correctional Center in Centralia, Illinois. He is eligible for parole in 2022. In yet another strange twist to this family story, years later in 2014, Fred's grandson, Adam Everett Livix, was indicted on weapons and immigration charges in Netanya, Israel. He was suspected of impersonating a Navy SEAL and plotting bombing attacks on Dome of the Rock, an iconic mosque in Israel. Livix was diagnosed as being psychotic and unfit to stand trial. He was held in a mental institution in Israel for a year before he was released back to the U.S. where he faced charges of stealing farm equipment. We'll be back to True Crime Sleep Stories right after this message. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, 
and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With Aim are here to make it happen. With Aim is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers, your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit with aim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's with aim.co forward slash podcast. With Aim, be the voice of your brand. This next part you're about to listen to was originally played in the trailer of this podcast. It's the story of James Patterson Smith. Enjoy. On an April afternoon in 1996, a man calmly walked into a Manchester police station in England to report that his girlfriend had accidentally drowned in his bathtub. The man was 48-year-old James Patterson Smith, and his girlfriend was just a 17-year-old child. The truth was that Smith was a sadistic, controlling psychopath, and not only had the girl drowned, but she had been subjected to three weeks of some of the most brutal torture England had ever seen. The horrific crime scene brought seasoned police officers to tears. Kellyanne Bates was mature for her age. At age 14, when Kelly told her parents, Margaret and Tommy Bates, that she had a boyfriend, they thought nothing of it. As any parent would, they assumed it was a teenage crush with a young boy from school. Wanting to raise their children with a sense of independence, they gave Kelly a long leash and let her see her boyfriend as she pleased. It wasn't long before Kelly started staying out overnight and her worried parents called police. When Kelly finally came home, she told them she was staying at her friend Rachel's house, but her parents had a sinking feeling that her story wasn't true. They weren't the only one concerned about Kelly's whereabouts. Even though they had never met him, Kelly's boyfriend Dave would occasionally call to ask where she was. What her parents didn't realize at the time was that Dave was already tightening his control around Kelly. Kelly managed to keep her parents from meeting Dave for a full two years until she was 16 years old. That's when she informed them that she was dropping out of school and moving in with him. Her parents were livid and called social services and the police for help. Because Kelly was now 16, according to UK laws, the authorities couldn't do anything. Kelly's parents demanded to meet her boyfriend, Dave. When Margaret and Tommy finally met him, they were shocked to find that Dave was not a boy, but a full-grown man. Kelly and Dave told her parents that he was 32 years old, but even that wasn't true. They later found out he was actually 48, older than Kelly's father at the time. Dave's age wasn't the only thing they were hiding from her parents. Dave was not Dave at all. His name was actually James Patterson Smith. Though mature for her age, Kelly was still young and naive. 
She was flattered to have an older man so interested in her, but what she didn't realize was their relationship was more about power and control than love. Smith controlled everything the young girl did from this point on. Kelly's demeanor slowly changed. She was no longer the bright, bubbly girl that her mother knew, and they gradually saw less and less of her. When she did show up at her parents' home, she seemed to be troubled and depressed, but refused to admit anything was wrong. Kelly would show up with bruises on her arms and face. When she showed up with the whole side of her face black from bruising, her parents' concerns reached a new level. Kelly lied to her mother and told her that she was jumped by a group of girls that beat her up. Each time she showed up with new injuries, her story would change. Her parents had no idea that Smith had a long history of violence towards young women. Margaret could clearly see this was abuse and went to the police, who told her to make an appointment with a doctor and get Kelly to go in for an exam so they could document the abuse. But again, Kelly was 16 and considered an adult. Her mother was helpless. Unless Kelly went in of her own accord, there was nothing that could be done. Kelly's mother could see that the violence was escalating when Kelly showed up with a horrible bite mark on her arm. Again, Kelly shrugged it off and said that she fell and caught her arm on a chain-link fence. In November 1995, Margaret pleaded with her to leave Smith, but this seemed to anger Kelly. She then told her mother that she would be seeing much less of her. That was actually the last time Margaret saw Kelly alive. Over the following months, Kelly phoned her mother and told her that she had gotten a job at a factory and was working long hours and weekends. That was why she hadn't come around. Eventually, the phone calls stopped. In March 1996, Margaret got a Mother's Day card and a birthday card for her father, Tommy. Both were clearly not written in Kelly's handwriting. Smith was now in complete control and toying with them. On April 17, 1996, James Patterson Smith walked into the Gordon Police Department and reported that his girlfriend had drowned in his bathtub. Police arrived to a horrific bloodbath that was obviously much more than a drowning. 17-year-old Kellyanne Bates had indeed drowned in the bathtub, but she had also been held prisoner for at least three weeks and had suffered torture beyond imagination. The pathologist's report revealed 150 separate injuries, including having her eyes gouged out, stab wounds inside her eye sockets, and the mutilation of her mouth, ears, nose, and genitalia. Her head was partially scalped. She was scalded with boiling water, burned with a hot iron, stabbed and cut with knives, forks, pruning shears, and scissors, and her knees had been kicked in. Literally, every room in the house had traces of Kelly's blood. Evidence revealed that she had been tied to a radiator by her hair, and her eyes were gouged out at least a week before her death. She had not received water for several days and had been starved, having lost about 45 pounds. Investigations revealed that there was a progressive pattern with Smith. They found that he had married years before and divorced due to his violence against his wife. After the divorce, he dated a 21-year-old who testified that he used her as a punching bag, even while she was pregnant. Their relationship ended when he tried to drown her. After that, he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl who testified that he held her head underwater. 
At the trial, Smith denied the murder charges and believed he was justified in his torture. Smith claimed that Kelly taunted him about the death of his mother and that she only had herself to blame. He also claimed she had a habit of hurting herself to make it look worse on me. When asked why he had gouged her eyes out, he said she dared me to do it. The jury didn't even need a full hour to come back with a guilty verdict. The evidence and photos seen at the trial were so horrific that after the trial, the jury was offered psychological counseling. Every jury member accepted. James Patterson Smith was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years. Kelly was buried the day before her 18th birthday. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.